Welcome to the Toa On Air podcast. I am Nico, the founder of Tech Open Air. At Toa, our mission is to help people, organizations, and the planet become future-proof. Our T stands for technology, but it is not features, but the relationship between technology, work, and life that we seek to explore. And we'll give you context around the latest trends so you can make better decisions moving forward. Excited to now present you the following conversation I had with Julia Angwin, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, New York Times best-selling author and entrepreneur. She's a co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Markup, a non-profit newsroom that investigates the impact of technology on society. Their tagline is, Big Tech is watching you, we are watching Big Tech. How's The Markup different to other media outlets? It is centered around data and has its own methodology to investigative reporting. They will publish the underlying data sets and code that is used in their investigations, as well as a detailed methodology describing the data, its provenance, and the statistical techniques used in the analysis. The markup has already used this method to document housing discrimination on Facebook, forcing the company to change its ad platform. They've also used this method to reveal how software used in criminal sentencing is biased against black defendants, causing a shift in how computer scientists design their systems. I had way too many topics to discuss with Julia, and I hope we'll be able to dive deeper in the future. But the following conversation shines a light on her inspiring work, the future of media and technology at large. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Welcome to another episode of Tour on Air. And today I'm joined by Julia Angwin. Do I pronounce this name correctly? Yes, that's right. It sounds like Penguin. Angwin, Penguin. <laughs> Angwin, who's dialing in uh, from Connecticut, um, but actually lives in New York and who's a Pulitzer Prize winning American investigative journalist, um, New York Times bestselling author and an entrepreneur. Uh, you started what is called The Markup, a nonprofit newsroom that investigates the impact of technology on society. I'm really excited to speak to you because that description already, you know, is so aligned with uh, what our mission is at to us. So thank you very much for joining. Oh, it's great to be here. So Yuya, uh, maybe before we get into uh, kind of the markup and, and how you're redefining uh, media um, and investigative journalism, um, maybe let's start out with talking a little bit about your past and how you got to where you are. Um, you also mentioned there's a lot of connection to um, actually the German scene. So tell us a little bit about how you know your path kind of unfolded into entrepreneurship and media. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. My parents were sort of that early generation. They left academia to join the personal computer revolution that was going on in the um, 80s. So I grew up really um, like that first generation. You know, kids today say they're digital natives, but I feel like I am, even though I'm an older generation, because I learned I never had a typewriter. I always had computers at home. We had the first Apple II. Steve Jobs lived nearby in, in Palo Alto. Um, he was funding a program to teach everyone in elementary school programming, which is why I learned. And I studied math in college and worked in my summers at Hewlett Packard, really intending to go into the technology industry. What happened was what 
happens to a lot of kids is I felt the need to rebel. So I was in college. I loved working on my college newspaper. It was really just a hobby for me. And I thought, you know what, why don't I do this fun thing for a little while before I go back to sort of my, what I figured was inevitable, my career in technology. So I started working in journalism and that um, was interesting because I started off in DC covering politics, totally different. But eventually it became a situation where I was really the only person in the newsroom who knew that much about technology, who knew how computers worked, who had a programming background. And I worked at San Francisco Chronicle and then the Wall Street Journal. And eventually I realized that my journalism could be super powered by using technology, right? I mean, journalists are outmanned, they are outspent, they are outgunned on all fronts. You know, there are, I think, maybe like, I can't remember if it's five or 10 PR people for every journalist in the US, but we need to use everything we have. And so we do public records requests, we do legal battles to get public records, we do, um, we cultivate human sources, but using computers and automation to collect data at scale and to do sophisticated analysis was something I felt that we could add to our arsenal. And so I started hiring different programmers sort of like as little one-time project here or there for my investigative work. And I ultimately decided that I wanted to build a newsroom around the idea of using automation and technology to help investigative reporting. And so the markup, which I founded in 2018, is basically a really unique newsroom where half the people in it are programmers and half are journalists and they collaborate on sort of sophisticated investigative work. And we do look at the impact of technology on society. So we use technology to investigate technology. Thank you so much. That's a great summary um, already of uh, how the markup kind of differentiates also if this sort of approach to being very data centric. I wonder like starting something like this, I mean, how did you go about it? It's not easy to start a media company these days, right? Where I guess kind of the, the long tail of uh, what is on offer in media is really hard to monetize. Um, and we do see kind of like that, well, you know, not winner takes all, but like that, you know, very uh, monopolistic kind of uh, landscape also uh, in the global digital media uh, landscape when it comes to kind of commercial viability. How did you go about it? And maybe tell us a little bit more about the actual model um, in terms of monetization that you have. Basically, you know, the impact, one of the many impacts of technology on society is actually has been the impact on media. It really is increasingly clear that newsrooms are having more and more difficulty relying on the for-profit model, mm -hmm. which is based primarily on advertising, to support high-quality journalism. And that's because they sort of had a monopoly in the past on their audiences, right? So when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, really the only way to reach a, a middle manager who had a BMW in golf was one of the best ways was to advertise in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And it was very expensive. Now you don't need the Wall Street Journal to reach that person. Online ad tracking means that That guy, you can find him as he browses the web and you probably find him on a cheaper website to advertise on than the Wall Street Journal. And you use this sort of surveillance and data exploitation economy to find him for cheaper. And so what that's meant is that legacy newsrooms where I spent most of my career, like the Wall Street Journal, where I spent 14 years, 
have been really kneecapped um, mm-hmm. in their ability to support quality journalism. They can still support journalism, but high quality investigative work is super expensive. And so we have seen that that is under threat, as is a lot of journalism. Local journalism is also yeah. under threat. So what I decided when I wanted to found this sort of different type of investigative newsroom was that we weren't going to go for the for-profit model. It just doesn't make sense for the type of expensive journalism we do. So we are a nonprofit and we raise money from donors who are interested in our impact on the world. And so we don't have to worry about clicks. We don't worry about clicks. We don't have advertising. We don't track our users. Mm -hmm. We make a real promise to our users, actually, that we won't participate in the data exploitation economy because we cover the data exploitation economy. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do is writing about privacy violations, the pervasive privacy problems on the internet. And so we we do a lot of unique things to protect our readers from that. And we hope that that pays off in their loyalty and their donations. And so far, we are are making it work. Now, you know, fingers crossed, knock wood, a million things, because making it in the media landscape is difficult and there are no promises. But we have had a very successful um, ability to to raise money so far. And so fingers crossed, I hope we will be able to keep that going going forward. And tell us a little bit more about the actual methodology that you have. Uh, part of it is also that you're very transparent in the way um, that you show the data sources and the code that you use in kind of analyzing um, that data. You, you have a very scientific approach. Maybe walk us through it and how does it differentiate um, from the kind of large-scale newsrooms that, that we you know may be accustomed to? Yeah, look, I grew up in a tradition of journalism that valued what they called objectivity. And objectivity was meant to be a neutral and fair point of view. But mm-hmm. as I think we have all learned, it really evolved into something that could be gamed and became false equivalents. So the idea of objectivity, for instance, might have led to a both side story about climate change, where it would be like one side says this and one side says that. The truth is the preponderance of the evidence is on one side of that equation. The vast, vast majority of evidence supports the fact that there is massive climate change happening. You can debate the reasons why, you can debate how fast it's Mm going to happen, but the evidence is clear. And so objectivity has turned out to be sort of a failed way to approach the difficult and complex challenges that journalists need to write about and that we as a a world face. And so I decided that it's one thing to throw objectivity away, but you need a new guide star. And so to me, it just made perfect sense that the scientific method was already out there. It's a way of trying to understand the world. And really, it doesn't involve this both sides thing. What it involves is developing a hypothesis. And then seeing if you have the evidence to support your hypothesis. And so you're very clear, you know, about your evidence and also your limitations. And so that's how we approach our reporting. We develop a hypothesis. So for instance, we did a story last year about Google. And the hypothesis was it looks like Google preferences its own properties in its search results. Then we had to figure out, could we prove that? So we collected 15,000 search queries and the results and we analyzed them and we figured out that, yes, Google takes up a good portion of the page for itself and a good portion of the top of the page, about 40% of the full page and about 60% of the top of the page. And so then we had a real finding, which was like something you anecdotally might've noticed, but 
we hadn't been quantified before. And then we had limitations, which is like, there's no way to do a random sample of Google search queries. Google doesn't provide random samples. So our sample wasn't random, right? So we, we write down the things that are a challenge in our findings. And we also write down our findings. And I think that one thing that we face in addition to the financial profit if issues of, of media is the media is also facing a trust crisis. And so I think that being really transparent about what evidence we have and what evidence we don't have is a way to try to rebuild trust with our readers because they are smart. They need to know what we know and what we don't know. And pretending that we know everything is just a fallacy, right? Knowledge evolves. Um, what we think we know now will change in six months when new evidence arises. And that's true on almost every front. And so I think it's really just important for us to be clear about what we know. And so that is our approach that is an attempt to replace objectivity with a more scientific approach. So it's sort of a reasoning from first principles. Yes and no. It's interesting because reasoning from first principles can be a principle like the tech giants are bad for society. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so we don't take principles like that. You know, we, we really take principles like uh, what is the truth and what is the ground truth? We really see ourselves as measuring the ground truth. I, I sometimes like to think of us as the kind of scientists who go and drill holes in the ice to see the effects of climate change. They're mm -hmm. really just measuring it. And I think what we're trying to do is measure the world and see, can we quantify things that haven't been quantified and therefore provide more robust data to the public debate about really important issues? And would you say that investigative journalism ought to be activist in nature? And, and would you say that you have an also activist kind of approach to choosing the topics that you that you cover? That's a really interesting question. I think journalism, particularly in today's world, where what constitutes the truth and who gets to decide what the truth is, is controversial. Journalism is inherently an activist act. <laughs> We believe that we should look at the facts on the ground, bring those facts to light on behalf of the public. I think that used to be a little bit less controversial than it is now. And there's a lot of, I think, really legitimate mistrust in the media because honestly, uh, the media was run by a bunch of very similar looking and thinking white men who had a very similar agenda for a very long time and they were the gatekeepers and they chose everything. And now we're in a world where there's more voices out there that demand to be heard and should be heard. And so what that means is there's not this sort of hegemonic gatekeepers that there used to be. And it also means there's more of a cacophony of noise and it's hard to know what's important and what's mm -hmm. not important. So what we do is we try to be really rigorous in our choice of topics And the way we do that is we actually have like a little checklist of what is important about our investigation. And what we do is we actually measure how many people are affected by the thing we're proposing to write mm -hmm. about, how badly are they affected. And so 
I want us to go after the things that affect the most people and that are the most impactful because we're a very small newsroom and we're a very expensive newsroom, right? We have a lot of programmers and we pay them probably less than their market rate, but more than a traditional journalist makes. And so we need to choose our battles wisely. And so we mm-hmm. choose, I would say, on two fronts. One, a lot of accountability for the big tech platforms that don't face a lot of accountability otherwise. And a lot of accountability towards tech that is used to make high stakes decisions about humans. For instance, the story we did last year about landlords that use tenant screening algorithms to decide Mm -hmm. who to rent their apartments to and how flawed the data was that they were relying on. So those are our two big areas of coverage. You could say that those are activists. They are, I believe that we are activists on behalf of the public who deserves to know how tech is being used for or against them. And I mean, just playing devil's advocate here to to kind of stir this um, conversation, because I, I, I find it really interesting, like to think, you know, through all the, you know, kind of um, implications of, of this approach. I mean, would you say that as a journalist, you know, it is, I think you said like, there's definitely an activist nature to it, but is it, you know, looking for, let's say, activism on the ground or consensus, you know, in parts of the population um, of, you know, different ideas and, you know, progressive ideas uh, and kind of surfacing that? Or is it and is there a risk and danger also of journalists maybe, you know, putting out their own agenda and kind of looking for, uh, you know, confirmation of, of their own actual views and, and progressive ideas? I mean, there's an entire genre of journalism, right? Opinion journalism that is about yeah. people's opinions. And then there's an entire sort of gray area that is uh, the hot takes world yeah. <laughs> where it pretends not to be opinion journalism, but is. But we're like so far on the spectrum yeah. from that, right? You know, we're a traditional investigative newsroom um, with some modern, I think, approaches, but yeah. ultimately investigative newsrooms aim to uncover things that the public would not otherwise find out about Mm -hmm. if these resources weren't applied to these questions. And Mm -hmm. so I agree with you that there's all sorts of issues about that bleed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I think that's on another side of the scale from where we operate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the reason I was asking this is in Germany, like this is a big discussion at the moment, also in the political campaign that is uh, taking place at the moment for our upcoming election in September. Um, and I think, you know, Germany t- tends to be like a few years behind the US um, when it comes to, you know, things that are being discussed. So identity politics is, you know, a huge, uh, you know, part mm-hmm. of, uh, of uh, this year's campaign. Um, for the first time, and I think in the US, we've seen it maybe at least for four years, uh, or the last election, but maybe even the election before. And I, and I wonder, like, what, you know, the role is of media in um, trying to, you know, have a healthy dialogue um, around issues and, you know, one where, you know, consensus can be found maybe across uh, different identities and where it is not so much about, yeah, kind of building, you know, echo chambers um, um, of different uh, political or, or um, social thought. Is that yeah. something that you think about, discuss with, with other uh, colleagues? And Yeah, I think about that a lot. I think, I think there's a real hunger mm-hmm. in our audiences for less sensationalism and yeah. alarmism and more productive dialogue about solutions. 
And so I, I totally understand what you're saying, or I think what you're saying mm. about, about that conversation. And there are lots of different efforts to, to address that. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of this group in the US, the Solutions Journalism Network, that tries to uh, directly mm-hmm. talk about solutions. I think what we see our role as is extremely precise diagnosis of a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people out there with hot takes saying Facebook is bad, Facebook yeah. is evil, Facebook is super evil. No, they're dramatically evil, right? I don't think those conversations are that productive. Um, What we do is much more precise, right? Our stories are, look, we built a national panel of Facebook users who contribute their data to us in a way that is privacy protecting. We strip out all their personal information and we analyze it. And what Mm -hmm. we have found over, you know, six, nine months of doing this is that Facebook repeatedly violates the promises it makes to its users and to Congress, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Those are findings that are important for the public debate because our constant finding that they made a promise on removing anti-vax content and not pushing it to their users, they broke it. They made a promise on not pushing partisan political groups, they continuously broke it, right? They made a promise on not offering, allowing advertisers to do discriminatory credit offerings, Mm -hmm. and we found that they were still allowing it. So what that suggests, that body of work that we have produced I hope that it informs the debate that's going on in Congress about whether their Facebook is really competent to self-regulate itself, right? Mm. I mean, I think what I want to do is make sure that there are facts in yeah. these debates and they're not just takes. And so I see us as like a fact insertion device into public policy. Would you say with, and, and you've done incredible work on uh, on Facebook and I, I uh, urge people to check that out, uh, especially in our audience. I think, you know, people be very interested in, and having a look, would you say with, you know, having studied it in detail, is Facebook a media company or is it a technology platform? And, you know, does it matter in the way that it should be regulated? I mean, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know what you call a company that has the ability to, with a snap of its fingers, mm-hmm. decide what is allowed and what is not allowed in public discourse in any country around the world. I'm not even sure that we have a name for a company like that, right? <laughs> That's beyond media or tech, right? We have a global arbiter of speech around yeah. the world in every nation that is accountable to no nation, really. Uh, and so that is something that I think is indescribable power, which is why we've spent so much time mm-hmm. building this very expensive panel to monitor their actions and try to hold them accountable. Part of that work, by the way, which is coming to Germany, yeah. we just launched it in Germany with Süddeutsche Zeitung to help monitor Facebook during this election season. Um, part of what we're trying to show with that work is not only are we providing these findings about what Facebook is doing and how that compares to what they said they would do. We're also trying to model what oversight might look like for a giant like that. Because I think the world is actually grappling with what do you do with a company like that? How does it get regulated? How does oversight look? And I think Citizen Browser, our effort to build this panel and and monitor them is a very small scale effort. You know, we only have several thousand people who contribute their data, but it does show that even with a small effort like that, some accountability is possible. And I hope that that provides some food for thought for the policymakers who are making the hard decisions about how they will try to hold this giant accountable. Yeah. 
And I mean, we could probably, you know, speak another hour on on this issue alone. It's uh, it's it's really. I mean, Germany Germany has uh, and, and Europe has. I think maybe that's one question to follow up with rather than a commentary. But do you think that the you know European kind of landscape, regulatory landscape, is providing a framework that will actually strengthen the European technology ecosystem or hinder its competitiveness, uh, you know, in the context of, you know, what the US and, and Chinese, uh, you know, systems provide for technology companies. Because it's, you know, we, we in Europe, there's been efforts to push and, and hold big tech maybe a little bit more accountable. Um, but it often comes in my industry, in the startup world, you know, when you speak to venture capitalists, they will often say, well, it actually kind of drags down the competitive of the European uh, ecosystem. Also, when you spin that further to biotechnology, for example, and, and kind of the ethical rails that, that Europe is, uh, is trying to put, put in place versus that kind of, you know, very free, um, open market that we see in the US. I mean, this is a challenge of regulation all the time, and I'm not a policy expert, so I don't know how yeah. to solve it. But I would say that whenever you put regulations in place, it does advantage the big players because they have the ability to mm -hmm. build the compliance teams to meet those regulatory barriers. Mm -hmm. And so that's a challenge, but it doesn't seem to me like the answer is no regulation, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we did that, then companies could pollute as much as they want. And right. <laughs> I mean, and there'll be no consequences. So it seems like there has to be some way to incentivize entrepreneurship and still hold big companies accountable. Um, I think there are lots of different ways to do that, right? The UK is looking at a sort of interesting approach that would hold sort of only the big companies accountable to some new rules um, in a way that I think is different and a little bit more flexible maybe than the EU rules. Um, but there are definite, and then there's ways that you can build in exceptions for smaller companies, which is very common in the US. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a lot of policy interventions to address the issue that you're talking about. And I'm not sure I'm like the right yeah. person to say which is the best. <laughs> How do you measure, you told us a little bit about the criteria that you have in kind of choosing the topics uh, and themes that you're going after. How do you measure the impact? Um, and, and what are some of the metrics that, that you look for? So traditionally, investigative newsrooms look at impact through action, essentially. Mm -hmm. Did Congress hold a hearing? Did the company change its behavior? Mm -hmm. um, and we use that metric, but mm -hmm. we also try to mitigate some of the unintended consequences of those metrics. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've learned being a long-time investigative journalist is that that metric can often lead you to go for lower hanging fruit. So for instance, it's easier to go after one bad cop than sort of the entire policing system and mm -hmm. the legal structure that enables police to avoid accountability for their actions. And so having an, imp an impact tracking system that really only looks at, well, did, a did some action happen as a result of your, of your story, I think can lead you to smaller stories. And so what I've done is built sort of a different type of metric system that scales the, the impact mm -hmm. by how many people were affected. So that even if you get a smaller impact, if more people were affected, it means that you have made 
like similar progress to if you had large impact, but it only affected a smaller group of people. So it's just an attempt to try to mitigate a little bit against that um, because I think how you design your impact metrics and how you measure yourself obviously trickles down into what you choose to do. And is the kind of show your work philosophy um, where you actually show the data sources, as mentioned before, and, and the code of you know that data and the analysis that you're doing around it, is that a collaborative kind of interactive dialogue with the community? Have there been uh, you know incidents where you would get you know feedback that actually drives uh, you know analysis uh, in in future investigations? Yeah, one thing we do with our show your work, which is very unique, is we share our findings pre-publication mm-hmm. with experts who review it and help us think through whether we're taking the right approach, what um, mm-hmm. ways we could strengthen our analysis, what ways we might have limitations that we haven't noticed and we need to spell out. And so that process is actually quite helpful. And I think in every case that we have published to show your work, I believe we've gotten feedback that's helped us change mm-hmm. our approach, even if it's just wording or, you know, something like that. But we we find that process to be really, really helpful. It's pretty unusual because sharing your journalism pre-publication has some legal risks because it is, you know, then there's a little bit of a document of how you changed it. And um, since uh, the laws here are based on intent, yeah. Um, you can open yourself up to that, but we have decided that it's just better to, to be really clear that our intent is to get it right. You know, our intent is to make sure what we have is correct. And so we're open about the fact that yes, we did change it in order to make it better based on the feedback. And we also share our data and the methodologies with the target of the investigation and give them time to comment and to find holes because obviously they have the most incentive to see if there's anything wrong with what we've done. And so that process takes time, but it is something that I think is really important to our general approach, which is to try to build trust with readers that we have gone to the greatest possible lengths to make sure that our evidence that we're presenting to them is the best that it can be. So I think what you are doing is, you know, really progressive and, uh, and you know, highly innovative. What, what other things do you kind of track and see out there in the media uh, landscape that you think is worth exploring? Or, you know, do you see any kind of technological um, innovations in the general media landscape that, uh, that you feel like will contribute to better journalism? It seems to have been a little quiet, no? The last kind of like post BuzzFeed, post, uh, you know, yeah. some of those kind of web 2.0, yeah. you know, viral kind of uh, properties. I think it's been really hard because the profit model is not mm. great, you know? Even mm-hmm. if you have really viral content like BuzzFeed does with the cat videos and quizzes and this yeah. and that, it turns out that it's, you know, it's still a really hard business. And so that's where I feel like a lot of the innovation is actually coming in the nonprofit space um, because that is where you can get a little bit more room. Mm -hmm. Your investors are more willing to believe in you. And so I like places like the 19th, which just recently started Mm -hmm. covering gender issues Mm -hmm. and from a women-led organization that I think just those voices haven't been 
out there in traditional newsrooms. And so I think there is innovation going on in the nonprofit space and in the local news space, which is turning a little bit more towards nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But the thing I really worry about is I just don't think there's enough nonprofit dollars for this to be, Mm -hmm. for journalism to be an entirely philanthropic exercise. And that is really concerning to me. You know, I feel we're really lucky to have backing, but there need to be dozens, dozens more newsrooms like ours and like the 19th and like all of them. And so I don't know if we have a financial model for that yet. What about sort of direct to, well, to use the analogy, consumer or reader, things like Substack, where authors and journalists can build their own community um, and monetize um, with, with subscription? Yeah. So the financial model for solo mm-hmm. invest, solo reporting is really, just to be blunt about it, mm-hmm. the incentive for the reporter is to, to basically do the cheapest possible content and Mm -hmm. the legally safest content, right? Because it's hard to be out there on your own with your own taking liability for your journalism, particularly in a world where we are seeing more and more legal harassment, mostly of journalists by people who don't like their coverage. And so if you're a solo operator, I think that unfortunately the incentives are to do opinions to do access journalism, to do business to business kind of trade journalism. All of those things are fine in um, their fine parts of the journalism landscape, but there, I do not think it's an appropriate venue for investigative, right? So I think I'm happy to see uh, that people are finding their voices and, and, and telling great stories and, and providing really interesting views through those types of newsletters. But I think for something as difficult and legally risky as being a watchdog for the public, you need an institution and you need lawyers to back you. Maybe just briefly, um, like how how big of a problem is this, uh, you know, legal action against uh, a story? Like, is this, can you kind of put a number on it? Is this like 10% of all stories where you have to deal with this or, or can it be even more than that? The legal risks of journalism are so high right now for yeah. investigating and actually not even just investigative. You know, I think that the newsroom reveal, uh, which is a California investigative mm-hmm. um, watchdog group, recently disclosed that they had this huge financial toll of a case that had been filed against them that they'd been fighting for years and they um and they recently disclosed exactly how much it cost them. I can't remember the number, but it was staggering. You know, there have been more and more cases of lawsuits against journalists for all sorts of things. And it's a very legally risky environment. Mm. It's not a 10% thing. Yeah. What it is is one innocuous story sure. mm-hmm. costs you everything. Right. Yeah, yeah, and got it. that story will yeah. be. And that is where it's really difficult. And so we have had a very hard time getting liability insurance. And it's actually really difficult these days for newsrooms to get liability insurance. What about, and this last question on on sort of, you know, monetization, because I do think 
seems to be really important for more diversity in, in journalism uh, or more diverse models and, and methodologies uh, to it. Crowdfunding, blockchain, micropayments, do you have hope for those technologies maybe allowing for a model where you know readers can more easily contribute? I saw your daughter also had a, a crypto project um, in her student days. Yeah. So, so you probably yeah. are a, a sort of expert by now. Um, yeah, <laughs> my daughter has a password business where she makes cryptographically yeah. secure passwords um, and sends them to you in the postal mail <laughs> on a piece of paper. Um, and sh- uh, but I think micropayments is obviously some mm-hmm. really low hanging fruit that. It would be great to see enabled. Uh, I myself would love to just pay a dollar to read a story at a yeah. newspaper that I'm not necessarily going to subscribe to because it's not in an area, it's geographically not where I live yeah. or whatever. So that's something that I think is just, it's really disappointing that it's been talked about for so long and hasn't been solved. But I think like if you think about journalism and its history, it's really never been supported by subscriptions. It's always been primarily advertising with subscriptions as an add-on. And Mm -hmm. so I find it hard to believe that that's going to be the only solution, right? Mm -hmm. I think the truth is that most people think of news as free and that it should be free and they would like it to be free. And they're perfectly happy to pay a dollar for their local paper, but they're not necessarily going to pay a dollar to every article that Mm -hmm. they want to read online. And it's worth thinking about the fact that journalism, the kind that we do, investigative journalism, is depressing to read. You know, <laughs> honestly, I mean, we try to make it as hopeful as we can, but like, it's not something that it, it's less likely that people will subscribe. It's more like they want it to happen, right? It's like yeah. the trash. You want the trash to be picked up. Do you want to ride on the trash? Mm. cart with the guys and smell it all no not so much so and so you know i mean i can't believe i'm making an analogy to investigative journalism as garbage (laughs) um (laughs) but the truth is like we're not necessarily like there aren't people who wake up every morning i think there's some people who wake up every morning and say i really want to read a hard-hitting piece that makes me depressed but not everybody and so i think we need to have an understanding that what we do is a public service and sometimes public services need to be funded in a different way. So coming to the closing uh, section, uh, one question, the only question I actually ask everybody um, on the show uh, is this question around kind of iteration um, versus pivoting. Um, So we have lots of entrepreneurs also in our audience and, you know, having interviewed uh, lots of them as well, I, I find this question just really interesting and often very important to the future success of a company, at least in hindsight, is this idea around, you know, am I building something? It could be a project, a product, a feature, a company um, where I have an iterative approach and maybe I haven't found that fit yet, uh, product market fit, but I keep on incrementally iterate to, you know, hopefully find it at one point, or do I have to actually pivot and, you know, really do kind of a, a step function change um, in, in the way that I'm building. And have you in the past, you know, experienced moments like that where you had to make that decisions? And do you remember sort of how you went about it? Were there any you know, conversations that led you to, yeah, take the right decision or take a decision? You know, I think that's a good question. Um, I think I've, 
as a person who's written about business mm-hmm. and a business reporter and has an MBA, I think you can find examples of companies that have succeeded through pivoting and you can find examples of companies who have succeeded through iteration. Yeah. And it's really, that's one thing that's endlessly fascinating about business is there's no hard and fast rules. Sometimes it works, sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't. I will say that I myself am inclined towards iteration. And the reason is I think that it's cultural. One thing that I really love about our newsroom mm-hmm. is that we have sort of blended the engineering culture with the journalism culture. And the journalism culture can be very solo oriented. It can be very macho. And the engineering culture, interestingly, is collaborative mm-hmm. and iterative because honestly, engineers are generally taking on challenges that can't be solved without a team. They're too mm-hmm. big and they have to fail. A lot, right? That's why they have that fail fast um, motto. And what I really have loved is integrating that engineering culture into the newsroom, making failure more normal, making it more regular and to just be like, hey, you know, the methodology, the approach we've been taking on this statistical analysis, it looks like it has these flaws. Let's adjust. Let's talk to our experts. Let's find a new way. And not characterizing that as a failure, just characterizing it as This is how knowledge evolves. This is how we work. And so I would say that I, our newsroom is inclined towards iteration and I'm psychologically inclined towards iteration, Mm -hmm. but I would not want to rule out ever the idea that you have to make drastic change because that sometimes happens. And you spoke about kind of the feeling that often maybe people get reading investigative uh, news stories and you know said could make you depressed. Um, and I wonder, like, what's your you know own personal approach to keeping you know mental balance and mental health uh, being in in the yeah in, in an industry like that? Oh, that's a good How question. How do you structure well, think... the day, or are you know are there like yeah any any things you can recommend that work for you? Yeah. I mean, I am a very dedicated yoga student and Mm -hmm. have a meditation practice and honestly think that those two things are the main way that I keep sane. I think everyone has different ways and I wouldn't say that that's what has to work for everybody. But I think in, first of all, being an entrepreneur is really difficult. Secondly, being in a news environment is really difficult Mm -hmm. because you're constantly being barraged with new news that you have to sort of read and keep up with. And so finding time and space for myself to detach from that, recognize that there are, and refocus on my priorities is is extremely important. And how wide is your uh, news intake then? Um, You know, do you think we ought to kind of read maybe the other political spectrum also to, you know, kind of be able to maybe build better bridges or do you think, you know, ultimately we only have that amount of time and then we need to kind of read things that nourish us? No, I think my news intake is probably really different because, mm-hmm. you know, we are such a different type of newsroom. So mm-hmm. I would say I read a lot more academic papers than I, mm-hmm. than maybe most people do. I'm always looking for new hypotheses to test, right? And so I often find those hypotheses in academic work, right? Researchers even will write philosophically about a question. Is this, you know, thing happening in the world philosophically it should or it shouldn't. And I can, I often find inspiration in those types of things. For instance, the the story that I did on 
um, criminal risk scores that were biased against Black defendants really arose from reading some law papers and Mm -hmm. and a philosophical treatise about whether prediction was really the right way to deal with criminals at all, right? And that's a philosophical argument, but it actually led me to think, oh, I could actually test this hypothesis in a very limited way on a um, a limited data set and just see if it's even accurate before Mm -hmm. we even get into the philosophical question of whether it's fair. And then lastly, let's maybe just spend a few moments on talking about sort of the current state of tech. And I love your tagline, which is big tech is watching you. We are watching big tech. What are, you know, what state do you think are we in, you know, in kind of the cycle of, of boom and bust when it, when it comes to tech? And you covered, uh, you, you wrote a book about MySpace, um, actually. So you've, you've seen a fair amount, I guess, of boom and bust um, in the technology space. And and what are the questions that you are particularly watching out for at the moment? Yeah, I think we're in what I like to call <laughs> the canned food um, moment where, you know, when we first learned how to can food, mm-hmm. um, everyone got really excited about it. You could have peaches any time of year. Um, I don't know if this happened in Germany, but certainly in the U.S., every recipe include a can of cream of mushroom soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just all obsessed with canned food because it was like revolutionary. You could keep food longer you could keep forever and it changed people's diets. And then after about 20 years of canned food, everyone was like, Hmm, I feel like there's a lot of sodium in here and maybe we should go to the farmer's market and get some artisanal food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like that's where we are with tech, right? It's like, We got these little supercomputers that we could keep in our pocket. It was so incredible, so revolutionary. And everyone was like, this is magic. I'm all in. And now we're kind of 20 years in and everyone's like, hmm, seems like there's some downsides. Maybe we should have a little bit more artisanal technology that Mm -hmm. that our needs that is more tailored to our values, that doesn't have the bad side effects. And I think we're working our way through that to figure out how we want to coexist with this powerful and wonderful new world, but we need to mitigate the downsides. Thank you so much, Julia, for spending this time with me. Really looking forward to keep on following what you're up to, as well as the markup for anybody interested in checking it out. It's themarkup.org. And I very much recommend having a look. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. This has been great. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Tour On Air podcast. Allow me to briefly tell you about our new product called Club. Club is an online community that hosts cohort-based learning programs on things such as how to found a company, how to invest into startups, crypto, and digital transformation. Find out more on tourclub.com. That is club with a K. If you enjoy these conversations, please do us a favor and rate us on your favorite app. The data monkey needs to be fed. And don't forget to subscribe to not miss out on our next episodes, where we will be sharing more unquarantined ideas and learnings from leaders across the field. We are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Castro, Overcast, and Spotify. And many thanks to Julia Angwin from The Markup for sharing her knowledge and ideas with all of us. <laughs>